This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a rare genetic disease, causes progressive muscle wasting that slowly robs people of abilities and leads to death. In recent years, much attention is focused on the use of antisense oligonucleotides to bypass defective portions of the exon that codes for the dystrophin gene to restore its production. Dystrophin is a protein that is essential to healthy muscles. Summit Therapeutics is taking a different approach. Instead of restoring dystrophin, Summit is developing a drug that activates eutrophin, a related protein that serves a similar function to dystrophin during fetal development, but then shuts off. We spoke to Glenn Edwards, CEO of Summit, about the company's eutrophin activator, Azutramid, its licensing deal with Sarepta Therapeutics, and why, unlike the exon-skipping drugs that target specific subpopulations of Duchenne patients, Azutramid could provide benefits to patients broadly. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's uh, good to be here. We're going to talk about Summit Therapeutics, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and your effort to develop a drug to treat it. Let's start with Duchenne itself. What is it? How rare is it? And what's the prognosis for patients today? It's a, it's a relatively rare disease. It's not one of the uh, rarest. There are about uh, one in 5,000 uh, live male births are born with Duchenne. So that's, uh, that's not that common. And what happens is that the uh, the boys are born with a, a fault on the gene that codes for a particular structural protein that's uh, essential in, uh, in muscle. And uh, there are sort of two variants of the disease. Um, if the fault results in absolutely no dystrophin being made, then uh, the disease is Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And there's a, a rarer form where the fault uh, results in a shortened or uh, less quantity of the dystrophin being produced, and that's known as Becker muscular dystrophy. Um, in Duchenne, it uh, tends to be uh, uh, picked up as the boy's development is a little bit slower than uh, the, the normal, so anywhere from second birthday to as late as eight, but typically sort of uh, three and four years old. Um, but the disease results in slow uh, muscle wasting, and so it's in, in, invariably fatal uh, with the boys uh, being uh, in wheelchairs in their teens and then needing uh, ventilator support. And uh, although uh, various uh, uh, 
care routines have developed to extend boys' uh, lives, they inevitably typically in the in the twenties to uh, to early thirties. What are the treatment options today? Well, uh, up until a couple of years ago, um, the main treatment uh, options were uh, extensive uh, support from care workers uh, and, and parents that made a difference. Um, there's also a big step forward uh, uh, a decade or so ago with the use of steroids that uh, helped uh, uh, ameliorate the symptoms and uh, uh, and improve the uh, uh, the lives of these kids, but not really with a significant uh, life extension. But it certainly uh, helped uh, in the uh, in the short term. But there've been some huge advances in understanding exactly what's going on in Duchenne, and that's led to some really innovative new treatments uh, coming through. Many many of which are in the development at this stage, but the uh, uh, the two most advanced technologies right now, uh, which are available, one in Europe and one in the US, are uh, treatments using a, 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 a technology called uh, a nonsense mutation technology. So this is a company called TTC Therapeutics, has a, a drug called Translana that's been approved in Europe. Unfortunately, it's only a pretty small minority of the MD boys for whom this is suitable between uh, 10 15% of the boys have a mutation suitable for, for that uh, treatment. And then uh, there's another technology called exon skipping, um, where a short piece of nucleic acid is, uh, is put into the, injected into the patient. And that helps by um, exactly what it says on the tin, skipping over where the mutation is and, and hopefully producing a short form of the protein, but a functional form. And, uh, there's a product for one particular area of mutation used by a company called uh, Director called Exodus 51, which has recently been approved uh, in the US. But again, that product is for a different small minority of patients, about 13%. But that technology could be of, of, uh, of help to a, a number of others, and there are other versions of the drug being looked at for other mutation types. But both those drugs, while... Uh, uh, doing uh, a, a good job and, and enough to, uh, to to get approval and to improve the lives of these kids, we're, we're still, even with these, not at a perfect situation where we've got really uh, what could be considered things close to cures. So both for those patients for whom those drugs are not available uh, and also for combination use to try and further improve outcomes, there's still a massive need for new treatments in the Eutrophin is similar to dystrophin, the protein that Duchenne patients lack. Eutrophin, as I understand it, plays a, a role in fetal development and then it shuts off. How do eutrophin and, and dystrophin compare in terms of function? Yeah, that's a, that's a really smart observation. So our founder, Professor Kay Davis at the, uh, at the University of Oxford, uh, discovered uh, eutrophin's role in uh, in muscle and postulated its potential uh, use in the treatment of the shed. So it comes back to, to exactly what was said. So the, the the body produces two very similar structural proteins, uh, dystrophin and and, uh, and trophin. And to a first uh, approximation, they can do exactly uh, the same job. Um, in 
muscle cells, what we find is production of the, these proteins by the cells is separated in time. So when a muscle cell is first laid down, the cell produces eutrophin, and eutrophin occupies sites along the length of the muscle fiber and acts as a sort of molecular shock absorber. Um, and then over time, as the fiber matures, the eutrophin production is, uh, is reduced and turned off, and then the cells start producing dystrophin, and the dystrophin will start to occupy all the sites, the shock absorbing sites along the muscle fiber that the previous occupied by, by uh, trophy. So that's what happens in a normal uh, person. But in a, a child with uh, DMD, the same things are happening. So that when the muscle fibers first laid down, uh, eutrophin is produced to occupy the, the, the site. Uh, and then the eutrophin is downregulated, and uh, you expect dystrophin to be made, but unfortunately, the fault in the dystrophin gene means that no dystrophin arrives, and so slowly, uh, these sites become unoccupied, and eventually that particular length of fiber will have no eutrophin and no dystrophin, and that makes it very vulnerable to uh, 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 failure. And when it fails, you have uh, two things that happen. The first is you have a big inflammatory response to the injury of the, to, to the fiber. But the second positive thing that happens is a repair mechanism kicks in, which makes more eutrophin. So if we look for eutrophin in the uh, the muscle of uh, uh, you or I don't have DMD, we'll find very little eutrophin. But in the case of a, a boy with uh, uh, with Duchenne, when we take a, a, a muscle sample and have a look for it, we'll see that there are some parts of the muscle fiber that have a lot of eutrophin because that part has recently failed and is undergoing heavy repair. Then there'll be other parts of the fibers that have a little eutrophin, and that's because the repair was some time ago, and it's now in the time when eutrophin is being downregulated. And there'll be some parts of the fiber that have no eutrophin at all, and these are, are starting to mature, but they're also very vulnerable to catastrophic failure because they have no eutrophin and they have no uh, dystrophin either. So, so our approach um, is to uh, use uh, drugs that can get into the muscle and to keep the production of eutrophin turned on so that the sites will continue to be occupied by eutrophin and the muscle fibers will uh, continue to have that shock-absorbing capacity and not go through the catastrophic failure and not have the high inflammatory response uh, around them. And, uh, and we hope, therefore, that we'll be able to have a really dramatic effect well, you're developing a small molecule drug, Azutramid, to activate production of eutrophin. How exactly does it work? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a really good uh, summary of, of what we do because a number of people have said, oh, you're, you're the guys that make uh, uh, make eutrophin, and, and that's actually not what we do. Um, you know, eutrophin is a very large protein, as, as dystrophin is, and it, it, you couldn't make it in a fermenter and then inject it into the uh, the muscle cells because you couldn't actually get it inside the, the, the muscle cells. So what we have to do is uh, we have to interfere with the genetic control mechanism so that our drug um, taken orally is absorbed into the blood and then circulates uh, um, throughout the body including into the muscle cells and once it's in the muscle cells it interferes with those genetic control mechanisms 
to keep the eutrophin production uh, uh, turned on. So uh, you know, we call them eutrophin modulators uh, for these drugs getting into the cells uh, to ensure that the the mechanism that keeps the the uh, eutrophin being made is, if you like, that tap is turned on. Well, what's the advantage of this type of approach? Well, it has a, a, a number of uh, advantages. The the, um, uh, the two obvious ones are it's a small molecule, and so that means it's something that can be taken orally. So it doesn't require uh, injections um, or infusions to, to be taken. So that, that means it's a very convenient way of, of taking the drug. Uh, but the, the second and most important thing is we are completely agnostic about where the fault on the dystrophin gene is. We're not, if you like, fixing the gene to, to make dystrophin, but these boys continue not to be able to make it. Uh, we're turning on the eutrophin production, and, and these boys have a perfectly healthy, normal ability to make eutrophin. And that means we can be completely independent of where the fault is on the dystrophin gene, um, and therefore our single drug could treat all the boys with uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And that's a big step forward because the, the previous technologies that we talked about, the, uh, the, the nonsense mutation technology and the exon skipping, then each drug there can, has to be tailored just to a specific mutation. And, uh, and that means that um, uh, each individual drug can only be used from a minority of, of the patients. So, um, it's very exciting for us and, and uh, provides um, a lot of hope for many of the boys with, with Duchenne because it means if you're not amenable to one of these other drugs, you would be able to treatment um, uh, with uh, Izutramid. With Obviously, I, with, with the caveat that we're still in clinical development, while well, we've got very exciting uh, data from animal studies and the basic science, uh, we uh, are now in phase two trials, and so we will find out shortly whether all that encouragement uh, leads to uh, uh, efficacy in, in DMD boys. Uh, but if, it, if, um, if we show that, then it, it uh, will provide great hope for, uh, for these children. With, uh, Is there a clear sense how much eutrophin production needs to be stimulated to produce a therapeutic benefit? No, that, 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 that's, uh, that, that's an area where we still need to, to, uh, to, to do a lot more research. And the same with, uh, with, uh, with dystrophin, um, that uh, uh, we don't know exactly how much is needed. But there are indications which uh, are that you don't really need a large amount of either dystrophin or eutrophin to have a really profound effect. And while more is obviously better, you could have a huge impact with relatively uh, little uh, being produced. Um, if, you, if you can kind of, uh, um, you know, one of the analogies that, that, uh, that actually our, our uh, chief scientific officer John Kinsley has used is that of a, a trampoline. And you can imagine that um, dystrophin or eutrophin are the springs around the child's uh, trampoline. Um, obviously, it works perfectly if every one of the springs is there, uh, but actually it can work pretty well if um, if there's only, say, 10, 20% of the springs there, provided they're evenly spaced 
placed uh, around the trampoline. Uh, but if there are none there at all, then uh, as child jumps on it, there's going to be a, a, a real problem. And uh, we believe it's the same with dystrophin and, uh, and eutrophin. And, and we've certainly seen in two areas there's evidence for that. So in, in some um, uh, transgenic animal experiments that were carried out in, in the University of Oxford by Kay Davis, they, they have added uh, the ability for these mice to make more uh, eutrophin. And they, they had a couple of different strains of the mice, one that made a lot of eutrophin, and they were in really good shape. Uh, but one that made actually a very small amount of eutrophin, but the key is it made the eutrophin all the time. And while not being perfect, it was a huge step forward, maybe 80, 90% of uh, towards the cure. So, so that, that, that was encouraging. And the second area that gives us encouragement, you don't perhaps need very large amounts of either eutrophin or, or dystrophin, has been in the case of this other group of patients that, that I mentioned right at the beginning, patients with Becker muscular dystrophy. So uh, patients with Becker have a fault in the gene, and they make some dystrophin, but it tends to be truncated, so a bit shorter in length than the, the, the normal dystrophin, and they make less of it. It turns out there's a spectrum of this disease, so there are some patients that make uh, 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 you know, quite a lot of, uh, of truncated dystrophin, and they, their, their prognosis is, is quite close to a, a normal non-disease. But there are also uh, patients that make very little uh, dystrophin, and they look much, or their, their disease progresses much the same as Duchenne, and there's a whole spectrum in between. And what, what we see is if you have uh, about 10% of the normal level of dystrophin being produced, then that's pretty serious. Uh, but if you have, say, 30% of the normal level, no, no that's, that, that's not a lot. It, it, uh, Tenths of, of the normal level, but but that that's a long way towards um, uh, being a, a normal uh, type of, of muscle and, and muscle progressing. And between the ten and the thirty, it's pretty linear. So a little fifteen uh, percent is better than ten, uh, but then when you get to the thirty, it's not normal. So that encourages us to think that if we can get levels of eutrophin, or in the case of, of, of the other guys, levels of, uh, of dystrophin that are in the the low tens, percent of the normal level, then that should be very dramatic. So, uh, so there is something that suggests we don't need to, to, to have perfection, and that's obviously really encouraging for, for all of us who are developing treatments and, and obviously encouraging for, for the parents and boys with this uh, disease. I know early in the development of the drug, there was some concern about variation in the way it was absorbed. Have you modified that or, or resolved that problem in any way? Uh, yes, we we have we've made great straight uh, strides in 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 that area. It turns out that uh, isutramid is works really well in the uh, uh, in the animals. We get uh, really good uh, efficacy. Um, but when we first uh, moved into our human trials, um, we didn't get the levels of absorption and therefore the the, the level. Drug in, in the blood that we really need in order to see efficacy. Uh, uh, but we've worked very hard with uh, improvements in uh, formulation, and uh, we're now able to achieve uh, uh, levels in the plasma and in the in the muscles that uh, that should lead to uh, increases in the uh, the amount of 
ibuprofen and, and more importantly, the keepitrophin turn, turned on all the time. So we're, uh, we're very hopeful that um, the phase two trial that's going on with Azutramid will, uh, uh, will show efficacy at the end of it, but, but obviously we have to do the trial and we have to see the data at, at, at the end. In the longer term, as with many uh, therapeutic areas, once you have a, a breakthrough like um, like we have with uh, uh, with, with trophy modulation, as time goes on, you can find and, and think of ways and invent new ways of, of improving the treatment. So uh, while we're very uh, hopeful that Isutrabid will get to market and, and be the first in class molecule, we're already working with our collaborators in the University of Oxford to produce second and third generation molecules, each of which be a, a, a big step forward from uh, the current treatment, whether that's the smaller doses or less frequent doses or the more potent, you know, all those are, are options for us. But, but we're very hopeful that um, current formulations of uh, Isutrabid will prove to be efficacious and in the longer term we, uh, we expect to bring new generations of, of, uh, of drugs for this. Well, last year you announced a, a partnership with Sarepta. Walk us through that agreement and what does it mean for Summit? Yeah, so there, there are, um, are some really good things about um, uh, with Sarepta. So Sarepta have uh, this drug, um, uh, Exondis 51, on the market in the U.S. It uses Exxon skipping technology um, and uh, and, and that means they have a great deal of experience of working with the community and uh, you know, have a drug that, uh, that, that's made available. So they're, they're more advanced than us. They have regulatory expertise. They have sales and marketing expertise. And they have great relationships with uh, uh, the, the patient groups. And the way that the deal was uh, constructed is that uh, in the partnership, they will... Um, Market are eutrophic modulators, including Isutrabid in Europe and uh, ultimately in, uh, in Latin America, and we will aim to uh, to market uh, these drugs in, uh, in in North America and uh, and, and Asia. Um, and uh, we do the work. They provide us with uh, some financing, which uh, you know, together with financing we've had from investors, will enable the, the project to, to move forward at a at a rapid pace, uh, but they also share their expertise with us. So um, we've already, you know, had good regulatory interactions with them. They've helped us uh, with sites and how to get clinical trials going. They've given us advice on the best way uh, to develop the drugs. So hopefully, with them involved in the partnership it, uh, and using their expertise, that will result in a a more rapid and more efficient. Uh, way of, uh, of developing this Utrabid and, and the next generation of compounds. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, it, it, it's really encouraging from that point of view. In the longer term, if Azutramid gets to market, um, we think there'll be the scope for combination therapy that uh, the use potentially of Exondis 51 and Azutramid may give even better results than either drug uh, on their own. So uh, while our, our primary near-term objective is to get Azutramid to market, um, as soon as we've shown signs of, um, of, of uh, drug working in these CMD boys, we would want to start looking at uh, can we get further improvement 
The uh, approval of Sarepta's Exxon skipping drug came with a lot of controversy. Are, are you concerned at all that having Sarepta as a partner may bring unusually high levels of scrutiny during the review process, given how upset reviewers felt over the way its DMD drug was approved? Yeah, that's an that's a, that's a interesting question. And uh, the, the whole Duchenne field has, uh, has, has recently uh, been uh, full of some real characters and some real... Uh, uh, controversy. I think the the first thing that, that we'd like to do is we'd l really like to use the learnings of uh, the Sarepta experience and also before them um, there's uh, um, a, a drug uh, being developed by, uh, by Marin and, and Procensor which uh, did not get through the regulatory process, uh, was not uh, seen to be effective enough um, and the right risk Risk balance, um, but these, you know, while hugely disappointing for the patient population, you know, this, these are the first times that, that um, drugs are going through for the treatment of Duchenne, and we're all learning a huge amount um, uh, in from that process. So we hope we can apply those learnings and therefore present uh, the regulators, both uh, in Europe and in the, in the US, um, with a package that that has the data they need. Um, measured doing using techniques that, uh, uh, that, that, that they'll understand and value and therefore have a much easier path through through the regulators. So, uh, so I think there's a huge amount we can learn scientifically and technically um, from those experiences and apply to ours to, to hopefully make it easy for the regulators to approve the drug if it's, if it's shown to be uh, safe and effective. Um, so, you know, I think um, I don't think the relationship between Sarepta and the regulators is uh, is poisonous in any way. I think it really comes down to the data, and uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether Sarepta's data that they had at that time was enough for approval. In, in the end, uh, uh, they they got their approval, uh, but our job is to to not make it personal to present uh, regulators with uh, data they can understand that makes it clear. That the, the drug is safe and effective and, and get approved, and uh, and I think the Sarepta experience, the ProSensor experience, and the PTC experience can can help us uh, help the agencies by providing them with the data they need. You're in the process of enrolling a mid-stage clinical trial. The trial has an interesting primary endpoint. This is the use of MRI imaging to determine a change from baseline in fat infiltration and inflammation of the leg muscle. Can you explain the selection of this endpoint and its significance and why maybe it was chosen as opposed to some more functional measure? Yeah, I can. I, I can. So if, if we just take a little step back, first of all, and think about the disease itself. So it's a very slowly progressing disease. So as, as um, you know, without genetic testing, um, in the past, boys would uh, be typically diagnosed when they were sort of three, four, five. But that means you know they've got to three, four, five without uh, it being obvious that that they had a, a muscle wasting uh, disease. And uh, in some cases, they, they can be as old as seven or eight before they're diagnosed. So that means the disease progresses very slowly, and it's it's uh, it's apparent in functional. Uh, 
uh, tests only only very slowly, and, and that provides a huge challenge for people developing drugs in the area because it means you can have a very effective drug, but but it'll only be apparent that it's having uh, an effect on these functional endpoints relatively slowly, and um, which you can get around that by having large numbers of patients in other diseases, but this is a rare disease, so there aren't large number of patients. So, so that makes the statistics uh, uh, quite difficult. And so, uh, you know, while ultimately we all want to show that these um, these drugs are effective in, for instance, uh, prolonging the ability to walk or get up off the ground or to be able to uh, with forearm strength or, or or respiratory function or whatever your functional endpoint is. We just have to acknowledge that that even with a fantastic drug, it'll take some time uh, to to see that. So long trials, long complicated trials. The um, regulatory agencies understand that, and they have mechanisms for approvals and also for mid-stage studies for us to find out really are the drugs working or not by looking at more, if you like, mechanistic endpoints more. More intermediate endpoints. So, so um, in the case of uh, the Duchenne, uh, um, you know, first step might be seeing more or a different um, uh, pattern in the eutrophin or the dystrophin production. If it's dystrophin, you're, you're trying to make would be the first step in saying, "Oh, the drug's having some effect." We're now seeing changes in either of those proteins. Then the next step might be, um, are we seeing the boys developing? A greater proportion of mature muscle fibers because a boy with the disease doesn't really have many, if any, mature muscle fibers because there's this constant cycle of breakdown and regeneration going on. And as the fibers get more mature, they're more vulnerable to breakdown. So, so they have relatively fewer mature fibers because they all break down and become immature as, as, as they're repaired. So if we see more mature fibers, this look down the microscope at a muscle section, that would be a, a good step forward. Um, but looking down a microscope at a muscle requires you to take biopsies, and, and these biopsy uh, samples are, you know, it's, it's a, a quite invasive process, not something you can do very often. And if you had a choice of not doing it, that, that would that would be great. So we've all in the field been encouraged by by the, the parent groups and uh, by research funding to, to try and find things that are things you can do rapidly in clinical trials but don't involve cutting the boys uh, open. And so there are a number of blood tests that, that are being uh, developed um, to try and see can we, can we see that the muscles are improving by taking blood samples. And then there's the, the use of imaging. You know, can you use MRI or CT or some other technology to look into the muscle cells or the muscles of boys and see if you See these changes again without the need for, for surgery or you know, the pain and discomfort that goes with that. And there's a huge amount of hope in the field about using uh, magnetic resonance imaging technology to try and identify changes that, that are going on. And, and there are roughly two areas that are doing it. So that the first one, it, it is possible by analysing these signals from the MRI machine to, to look at the amount of inflammation. Remember right back at the beginning of this, this discussion, we said the way the disease progresses is at the point when they've got no dystrophin in the fiber, uh, that undergoes a catastrophic failure, 
one of the things is the repair. But the second thing was that you get a big inflammation. So these boys' muscles are inflamed. So if, you, uh, if you've got an effective therapy, you would hope to see a reduction in the amount of inflammation. It turns out MRI is quite good at, uh, at measuring inflammation. So that, that's a potential use and has been used in uh, trials looking at steroids and, and uh, has, uh, has been shown to be be effective in, in, uh, in doing that. What we're trying to do with our primary endpoint is another characteristic of MRI, uh, which is you can look at the proportion of healthy muscle fiber through a water signal and the amount of adipose tissue. So adipose tissue is, is the, the, the tissue in the body that uh, stores fat. And what we see in a, a healthy uh, person, if we look in their muscle-using MRI, we'll see very little fat in the middle of the muscle, and we'll see a lot of uh, health fiber, and that will mean they'll have a big water signal and a low fat signal. With the MD boys, as the, the, the disease progresses, unfortunately, we see the uh, number of uh, portion of healthy muscle fibers within the muscle mass decreases over time, and it's replaced by fibrotic tissue and with this fatty adipose tissue. And you can see, if you uh, look at a, a, a boy with DMD uh, on the, at the beginning of the year, that the proportion of fat will be a certain level, and at the end of the year, it will have deteriorated a little bit more, and next year it will deteriorate a little bit more. So that, that using uh, MRI to look at the fat fraction, the proportion of fat, the ratio of fat tissue to water and therefore normal tissue, that's something that always changes in an adverse uh, direction. So uh, we're hoping there are others that are uh, are also uh, trying to look at this uh, uh, this endpoint. We hope that's a way that would be kind of intermediate between those uh, technologies that involve taking a, a muscle section and the functional endpoints, like uh, how far can you walk in six minutes, how quickly can you get off the ground, how fast can you find stairs. Because those take a long time to see changes, we hope that we would be able to see changes in the fat fraction or in inflammation using MRI in a shorter period of time. The caution I would give you is that while the basic science behind those technologies is good, how we can actually apply those techniques in the clinical trial setting is, uh, is still uncertain. So I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that um, in the long run this will become a standard method, but uh, um, I'm not 100% uh, confident that um, uh, the technology is at a state today where we guarantee that if you've got a good drug, we will see its effects through, through MRI. And that's why in this phase-out study, we're looking at a, a whole host of different endpoints. We have to choose a primary endpoint. We, 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 uh, we, ch we chose MRI, but we're also looking at what's happening to the eutrophin in the muscle cells through the biopsy, what's happening to the maturity of the muscle fibers, um, with taking various blood samples for the for biomarkers that, that, that go with that. Um, we're looking at six-minute walk and all the, the elements of the North Star ambulatory test. So, so and we're very grateful to these boys because it's a really onerous trial uh, that they're, they're having blood samples taken regularly, their MRI, their muscle samples taken, they're doing six-minute walks, huge things. And, and we're, we're extremely grateful that, that they're putting themselves through this very onerous trial, hopefully, to give us the data that will mean in future we can choose one or two of these endpoints 
and make these trials simpler and get robust results. Um, Azutramid has orphan drug status, fast track designation, and, and rare pediatric disease designation. If all goes well, how soon might you be able to submit this for approval? Yeah, so that's a, that, that's a good question, and it can't come quickly enough for, for, for parents with uh, with Duchenne. Um, now, this trial is uh, a phase two trial. We're looking at these exploratory endpoints. What we will do is use the data from this trial to then um, design and carry out a, a registration. So um, the likely time frame for this drug, if all goes well, uh, for, it, uh, for it to get to market is, uh, is three years or so from, from now. So it's, uh, it's not uh, an imminent product. But on the other hand, um, now, I think if we get great data at the end of this year, then uh, then, then there will be a huge stride uh, towards having a treatment that, that is truly modifying for the entire Duchenne population. That will be amazing. Glenn Edwards, CEO of Summit Therapeutics. Glenn, thanks so much for your time today. You're very well. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.